Romans 14, that's where we are, Romans 14. So if you would open your copy of God's Word to that section. It's page 948 in those blue Bibles located underneath the seats around you. I had a, a, a very good time away, great vacation. While I was on vacation, as you uh, all know, there was this terrorist attack in Paris. And um, so that was disturbing, of course. Um, but what was interesting is because I watch the news while I'm away. I just can't help myself. I probably shouldn't, but I do. And what I noticed was is that this, this country is very divided, very divided. In fact, in many cases, just watching the television, it, the citizens of this country appear hostile toward one another, just on various political issues, but it uh, came up especially in concerning Paris and uh, what they would do with all the refugees and just the way they were talking about that whole situation or even how to deal with terrorism. And uh, you really found people kind of taking sides against one another as they discussed these things, very heated, very passionate about uh, the subject at hand. It was a little disheartening. I, I remember a time when I was younger that political parties could actually come together and they would just discuss things and they would have different views very different views, but they were cordial. They were uh, somewhat polite, somewhat courteous, respectful of the other person's position. It just doesn't seem that way anymore. But let me state the obvious, beloved. The church, the church should not be like the world. The church is a collection of very diverse people, Right? Look around you. Uh, People coming from different backgrounds, races, upbringings, economic and educational levels with often very different opinions and convictions on various matters. Yeah? Yeah. But in spite of all that, they are not, they are not to be divided or segregated or split into separate groups based on these things, taking sides against one another. But rather, having been united together as one body of Christ, they are to live as brothers and sisters in Christ, loving one another, caring for one another, deferring to one another, You know what that word means? Giving way to them. Giving way to them. Esteeming one another is more important than themselves. That's what we've been called to do, brothers and sisters, in the church. Working together as one to become more like Jesus Christ and to make him known in this world. Beloved, Satan knows, and you've probably heard this phrase before, it's been used repeatedly, that united we stand, finish it, yeah, and divided we fall. It applies to this country, 
But most importantly, it applies to the church. So, because he knows that, he seeks through various evil schemes and plans to, guess what? Divide us. To set the people of God against one another. The text before us is really the apostles' plea to the Christian community in Rome, the church in Rome, to fully accept one another with all of their differences, to embrace one another in Christ. It is a plea, beloved, not for uniformity. Paul's not calling everyone in the church to be exactly the same or to even think the same about everything but rather it is a call to unity in the body of Christ. You ready to look at it? We looked at it a while ago. And I'm going to do, we're way behind time, but I'm going to read the entire text again because it absolutely is the best part of the sermon. It's the best part of the sermon. I'm going to read the whole section because it's a unit. And we're kind of just chunking away at it, and we'll make another attempt today to chunk away a little more, having looked at it three or four weeks ago now. Beginning in verse 1, reading all the way to chapter 15, verse 13. Would you follow along with me as I read? The Apostle Paul wrote, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems or regards one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, 
destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. 15.1 We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with this people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. That's our text, okay? We're not looking at the entire thing, like I said. But uh, uh, last time we looked at this text, we had discussed the identity of the weak and the strong, the weak and the strong that we just read about in that section, and the basic problem or issue that existed between them, an issue that if not handled correctly or biblically could potentially rip the church apart which means that this is a, a very significant matter that Paul is addressing. It's no small thing. Beloved, as I said last time, we are called to uphold and maintain and preserve the unity of the local church. Do you know that's your responsibility as a believer in Jesus Christ? It's your responsibility. It's, my, it's not just my responsibility or the elder's responsibility. It's your responsibility in the body of Christ to uphold, to maintain, and preserve the unity of the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 which I would add means not only that we must be uh, careful not to do anything that would disrupt or harm that unity, but it also means that we should not take a nonchalant kind of, I don't really care, attitude towards it. You know what I'm talking about? So like, yeah, whatever. No, not whatever. No, this is critical. This is important. United we stand, divided we fall. We fall. So we must be diligent, beloved, to maintain it, okay? 
Uh, since it's been some time since we looked at the text, what I want to do is quickly remind you of some of the things I said last time, and then we'll get into some of the verses. First, the weak and the strong. This is review, unless you weren't here, it'll be new to you. The weak and the strong that Paul refers to are both, these groups are both Christians, okay? They're both Christians. They're both followers of Christ. They're both lovers of God. However, it is worth noting that Paul includes himself with the group that he describes as strong, according to chapter 15, verse 1. Writing there, we, we, the church to whom he's writing, and Paul, including himself, who are strong, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the other group or the weak. Okay, do you see that? All right. So Paul is including himself with that group. Just something to note. Second, Paul's exhortation to the church in Rome found in verse 1 that the church is to welcome those who are weak in faith. We'll get to that in a second. Weak in faith implies that the weak Christians in Rome were the minority. They were the minority. In other words, he's writing to the church and he's saying, welcome these, welcome these folks. He's writing to this large majority and they are to welcome or receive or accept this other group, which it is implied by that are the minority. Okay, so the strong are the majority, the weak are the minority. Third, the weak and the strong clearly had uh, different practices based on different convictions concerning what was okay or acceptable to eat or to drink or how they were to regard certain days of the year. Okay? Again, just all review. Fourth, both the weak and the strong in their respective practices, eating or not drinking, drinking or eating or not eating, drinking or not drinking, uh, esteeming or not esteeming certain days of the year as special, in all of these things were motivated by a desire to honor the Lord. How do we know that? Romans 14, 6. There Paul says, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Okay? With me so far? Fifth, I believe the differences in practice between these two groups can most likely be contributed to this. That is, that the one group, the weak, are primarily Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians, the minority Christian group in the church in Rome. And the other group, the strong, or the majority, are primarily Gentile Christians. Why do I say primarily? Because I've already pointed out that Paul identifies himself with the group who is strong, and Paul was a Jew. With me? Okay. So, I understand the problem to be this, that the Jewish Christians, the Jewish Christians, who because of their religious heritage and their loyalty to the Mosaic law, because of that, they struggled. With what? They struggled with their new freedom in Christ, which included freedom from the Mosaic law with all of its rules and regulations, some 600, over 600 of them, 
which included, among other things, dietary regulations and instructions concerning observing as special certain days of the year, such as the Sabbath. Remember that those who are in Christ, and Paul's already covered this, he explained this in Romans chapter 6 and Romans 7, they are no longer under the law. You remember that? Those of you who are here, we are not under the Mosaic law, beloved. Okay? That's why we can have bacon. Yes. Thank you, Jesus, for setting us free. I mean, yeah, yeah, okay. So um, that's silly, but that's still true. That's still true what I just said. Uh, It's why you can wear clothing that has mixed cotton and different fabrics in it. Otherwise, you'd all be in violation of the mosaic. Most, I guarantee almost everyone in here is in violation of uh, the clothing that you're wearing concerning the mosaic law. Uh, we are free from it, okay? We have been uh, released from being under the law. Uh, but we are not under nothing. We are under grace. We are under God's saving and transforming grace, beloved. Huh? So it's not like we're just, oh, we're out here, lolly, lolly, free, you know. No, we're under the grace of God, and he's, he's transforming us. He's changing us through that grace, empowering us to live for him and to please him, something the law could never do. But the Mosaic law, listen, the Mosaic law, which had regulated every aspect of the Jew's life, every aspect, had been all they had known and followed for so long, which understandably would have made it difficult for the Jewish Christians to fully embrace all the implications of their new life in Christ. As one writer said this, I mentioned this to you last time, concerning the Jewish Christian, he said this, when Christian faith which is the proper unfolding of Judaism, okay, came into his life, the the Christian Jew, the Jewish person, it was difficult for him to divorce himself from that which he had before. Judaism, the Mosaic Law. He had a tendency to cling to some of the ceremonialism of the Old Testament. For example, the eating of meats and the observance of days, because God had given that originally. But we are no longer under the old covenant, but the new. Something very unique and special had happened in salvific history. One writer claims this, that the conflict between those who practiced some form of Jewish custom and those who did not was the most significant issue within Christianity's first two generations. First two generations. In other words, they... They battled over this. Just think of the matter of circumcision. Think of the disputes they had over that. What are you saying? What are you saying we don't have to be circumcised? What are you talking about? Hold on, right? Remember all those disagreements they had? We read about some of them in the book of Acts. That was part of the Mosaic Law. No longer under it. And so with other things, how they ate. Some of these things, remember, beloved, these things really distinguish the Jewish people from everyone else, specifically their dietary regulations, what they ate, what they didn't eat, how they ate it, how they prepared it, 
and also the observance of days, such as the Sabbath. It really distinguished them from the rest of the nations, including circumcision. Okay? In contrast with the Jewish Christians, the Gentile Christians, the strong group, I believe, did not grow up living under the Mosaic law, and therefore, they did not have the same struggle their Jewish brethren did with fully embracing all the truths related to their salvation in Christ, their freedom in Christ. You with me? Okay. Now, the problem that arose from this situation, this historical situation, is the two groups, the strong and the weak, they looked at each other and said, in effect, what is your problem? What is your problem? The weak were judging the strong for exercising their freedom in Christ, and the strong were despising or looking down on the weak for not exercising their freedom in Christ. Doesn't that sound great? Sound wonderful? Good old church people. Now, listen, how does Paul address the situation? That's, that's where really we draw the principles out that we can then apply to our current century and situation because we don't have specifically that Jewish and Gentile conflict. Not, not really there in that way, but we still have conflict. We still do because we're people coming from all kinds of different backgrounds and, and traditions and, and religious heritage even, okay? But how does Paul address the situation? That's what I want you to notice. Does he tell the weak to snap out of it? Get with the program. We're not under the old covenant. We're in the new, baby. Come on, what's your problem? Does he tell the strong? By the way, the answer is no, okay? Because you were looking at me funny. The answer is no. I don't know if the hair is still throwing you, and that's okay, because it, it threw my daughter for a while, too. By the way, on that note, I'm going to tell you why I did it. Because my wife asked me to. I'm going to teach you a lesson right now. A happy wife. That's right, beloved. That's right. He's a happy life. That's right. And it wasn't sin, so I could do it. Anyway, back to this. I would tell her no otherwise. Does he tell, does he tell the strong that it is fine for them to insist on exercising their liberty unrestrained concerning these specific matters? Does he? He does not. He does not. Now look at Romans 14.1. Let's look at it. Let's look how the Apostle Paul approaches this situation, not like we might expect, but differently, a little differently than we might expect. Look at Romans 14.1. Beginning there, he says this, as for the one who is weak in faith, straighten him out. Does it say that? It says, welcome him. And listen, look at this but not to quarrel over opinions. Okay, let's break this down. We're going to talk about the phrase first, weak in faith, weak in faith. 
because that's how Paul defines the weak there. The weak in the church are not called weak because they are physically weak, but rather because they are, as Paul says, weak in faith. What does that mean? What does that mean? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean first. It doesn't mean, because sometimes this has been suggested by some commentators, I, uh, I completely disagree with this. It doesn't mean that these people have a weak or an adequate trust in Christ as their Savior or Lord. It doesn't mean that. I know it doesn't mean that because if it meant that, Paul would have addressed it. He would have dealt with that. If they, were, if they weren't sure about how one is justified, if they were thinking maybe it's, it's the law and Christ or something of that nature and they didn't fully understand their salvation in that sense, uh, no, Paul would have dealt with it as he does many other places. So that's not the case. So what does it mean? It's not an inadequate trust in Christ or the Lord for their salvation. What does it mean then? Guess what? We're going to answer the question by looking at the context, which is always a good idea. Look at verse 2, because that's going to help us answer that question. There, verse 2, by the way, follows verse 1, where he refers to them as weak in faith. There he says this, one person believes, believes he may eat anything. Okay, he's using the same type of words that they use for faith, believe, faith, weak in faith, believe. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Another translation of the Bible puts verse 2 this way. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak, weak in faith, eats vegetables only. Okay? So in verse 2, what we see is faith or believing is clearly a matter of believing or being convinced that something is legitimate or okay to do. So the strong has faith that it is okay or legitimate to eat all things, but the weak does not. That is what makes him weak in faith, meaning, I believe, that his faith is not strong enough to enable him to understand the full liberty that he has in Christ to partake of whatever he would like to eat as long as he gives thanks to God. Why isn't it strong enough? Why isn't it strong enough? Well, because the weak in faith is plagued with doubts about what he can and cannot eat. Why? Why? Huh? Because I was already stated it's because of his or her religious upbringing or heritage, because of his or her knowledge of and familiarity with certain dietary requirements of the Mosaic law. The law given by God to his people, to the nation of Israel, through his prophet Moses. The law which the Christian is no longer under obligation to as a rule of life. You with me? Kind of. You have to process that a little bit. So, one writer says this, These are Christians, the weak in faith, who are not able to accept for themselves the truth that their faith in Christ implies liberation, that should be from, certain Old Testament Jewish ritual requirements. The Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, that's the weak in faith. This is what makes them weak in faith. Now, 
What Paul does in verse 1 is exhort the strong or the Gentile Christians in Rome, the majority of the Christians in Rome, those who made up the majority of the church, to welcome those who are weak in faith, the minority group, the minority group. The word translated welcome is also translated, as I've already said, accept, accept or receive, accept or receive in other Bible translations. The word actually means this, quote, receive or accept into one's society home, circle of acquaintance. That's what the Greek word means, translated welcome in the ESV. Receive or accept into one's society, home, or circle of acquaintance. The idea then is that the Christian Gentiles who are strong in faith are not to simply uh, tolerate or put up with the weak in faith, but rather they are to fully embrace them as their own as their brothers and sisters in Christ. They are to welcome them into the family of God with open arms. They are to fully include them into the fellowship. Okay. Uh, One commentator adds, the weak brother must not be made to feel inferior or unwanted or even odd. They are to welcome them. Now, look back at verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, we looked at that, welcome him. We looked at that. But, Paul adds, not to quarrel over opinions. That's the first verse in this section. We know because we've read the whole section what Paul is talking about. The opinions he's talking about concerns the differing opinions about the eating of meats, the observance of days, and the drinking of wine that Paul talks about later in the section. Okay? Specifically, here are some other ways other translations put it. Romans 14.1 in the New American Standard says this, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Another translation, the NIV puts it this way, Accept him who's weak, whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. And finally, one other translation says this, Now receive the one who is weak in the faith and do not have disputes over differing opinions. Okay? To put it another way, do not welcome or accept or receive your weak brothers and sisters in Christ into the fellowship just so you can argue with them or beat up on them about their convictions concerning these particular matters. Let me say that again. Do not welcome or receive or accept your brothers and sisters in Christ, your weak ones, into the fellowship just so you can argue with them or beat up on them about their convictions concerning these particular matters. See, listen, the unity of the church is what Paul is primarily concerned about. And these differing views concerning what one eats, drinks, and days they observe as being special should not have gotten in the way of that unity. They should not have. You with me? And again, you're thinking, yeah, but we don't have disputes about uh, what we can eat or, well, sometimes what we can drink or even days of the year, not typically. But I want you to see the principle. I want you to see what Paul's after. I want you to see that unity is critical to him. Do you notice he doesn't even... He doesn't even address the issues. 
Do you notice? Nowhere in the text does he really address the issues. Other than one place, he'll say, listen, I know nothing is unclean. But he doesn't even elaborate on that. He doesn't go any further. He just, he just continues on. In other words, he allows these folks to hold their positions without, he doesn't attack them for them. What he's going after is the attitude of the church toward one another as they express their convictions, and those convictions are a little different concerning some things. Huh? Do you see? That's what I want you to see because that's important. By the way, just to be clear, Paul, Paul's not talking about matters of sin. He's not saying that a one brother and another sister over here can have a, a different opinion about what is sin. So or in the sense that if the Bible clearly states this is sin, so adultery, okay, or fornication, uh, living together outside of marriage in that way. You got me? There's kids in here. You understand what I'm saying? So then one person says, I don't think it's sin. And the other says, well, I think it's sin. So that's okay. Welcome them in. It's, it's cool. You know, just be cool with them. That, he's not talking about that. In that case, we would be called to rebuke that brother and sister in Christ because they're dead wrong. The Bible's very clear concerning this issue. It's sin. You with me? Also, he's not talking about uh, fundamental, essential issues like the virgin birth of Christ or the deity of Jesus Christ or the fact that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So if I had someone come into the congregation and said, oh, no, 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 salvation comes through uh, this plus faith in Christ. Uh, baptism plus faith in Christ, or through works plus faith in Christ, or plus obedience to my long list of rules plus faith in Christ. I wouldn't say, oh, you're welcome. Come on in. No, I would exhort them and correct them and challenge their incorrect doctrinal position. You with me? But he's talking about what you eat or what you don't eat or what you drink or whether one observes a day is more special than another. Not something to get so worked up about. And yet the church was worked up about it. All right? You with me so far? Now look back at 14, uh, uh, verse 2. Read verse 2 and 3. So then Paul says, listen, uh, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Exhortation here. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. In verse 1, after exhorting the strong to welcome the weak, and not so that they can quarrel over opinions. So if that was your motivation for uh, welcoming them into the fellowship so that you can uh, browbeat them about their convictions... You better not be doing that. You welcome them in with the right motivation, okay? But he goes further, and now he rebukes the strong concerning their attitude toward the weak in general. Again, the weak in faith. He says, so the one who eats, that is, the one who eats, that is anything. He eats anything. He does not limit himself to eating just vegetables. That's the context. That's the one who is strong. They are not to despise despise or look down on those 
who do abstain from eating meat and because of that choose rather to eat only vegetables so that they might survive. And you might remember this from last time, but I said the possible reason for that because the Old Testament law doesn't specifically say you can't eat meat. It certainly allows you to eat meat, not every kind of meat. It gives very strict regulations. But there's, you know, have you ever heard of the word kosher? Kosher. So those are laws, mosaic laws, uh, laws within Judaism concerning not only not not only what you eat and can't eat, but also even how it's prepared. It has to be prepared according to the Mosaic Law. So you might remember, I told you, the Jews were booted out of Rome. Okay, So initially, the, Jew, the church in Rome would have been primarily Jewish, but the Jews were kicked out. Then, at another point in history, they were allowed to come back. These Jews came back. So we have Christian Jews now. The Christians would have been kicked out. Now they came back, but they kind of were dispersed. And now they're in an area where they're not maybe sure that the food is being prepared kosher. And they've always ate the food prepared according to the Mosaic law. That's what they did. And they did it in honor to the Lord because they were under the law, under the Mosaic law. Now they come back. They're not sure that the meat they're getting or at the market or anything else, are they sure it's prepared? Are these Gentiles going to take the time to prepare it kosher? I don't think so. And so they're nervous, and maybe that's the reason that they decide, forget it, we just won't eat meat. Not, not now, because I'm not sure it's being prepared according to Mosaic law. You with me? So that could be the reason. That's why they're abstaining, okay? Paul doesn't lay all that out, so we kind of have to try to uh, do some work to try to figure out exactly the situation going on. Now, here's what I want to point out. That word despise, despise, they were not to despise the weak, you know, for abstaining, This is what one writer says concerning that word, despise. Despise implies the Greek word that is translated despise, a disdainful, condescending judgment, an attitude that we can well imagine the strong majority who prided themselves on their enlightened perspective concerning Christ and all that that meant and their salvation in him, taking toward those whom they considered to be foolishly hung up on the trivia of a bygone era. In other words, on the unimportant things of an era that is gone. They're no longer under the Mosaic Law. Look at these idiots of brothers and sisters in Christ. You see that? Oh my goodness, we're so messed up. We are so messed up. These are brothers and sisters in Christ who are who are struggling with this incredible transition out of the old covenant into the new in some of these aspects. And Paul is telling them, your attitude is wrong. You're to welcome them, not so you can uh, argue with them about these different matters, but beyond that, stop despising them. Stop looking down on them. One writer says this, the tendency of those who eat whatever they want is to look down on those who for reasons of conscience, and we're going to look more at that, which is going to be fascinating as we move through the section, for reasons of conscience, they are unable to exercise the same freedom. Freedom in such matters tends to create an attitude of superiority. I'm free. What's your problem? Beloved, that attitude is certainly not rooted in love. Huh? Love, love, remember, what's the biblical definition of love? 
a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved. It's not that. It's not that. You know what it's rooted in? Sinful pride. Sinful pride. You know, that's, honestly, that is the root of our problems, you know, in the church, in our relationships, in the world. It's pride. One writer, uh, he added that throughout the ages, throughout the ages, he was just commenting on this text, churches have been plagued. Churches, okay? They've been plagued by those who proudly consider themselves to be spiritually superior. But guess what? The strong are not the only ones who needed their attitude to be addressed. Huh? Paul turns his attention to the weak as well. Right? Takes two to tango, right? Yeah, and surely there's lots of guilt to go around. He says in verse 3, let not the one who abstains, who's that? That's the weak, the weak in faith. They're choosing to eat vegetables only, not meat in this particular situation. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Another translation of the Bible puts it this way, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does. For God has accepted him. <laughs> While the strong were guilty of uh, looking down their noses on, at the weak, the weak were not innocent, okay, in all of this. The weak were guilty of condemning the strong Christians for having no inhibitions about their food. They looked at them like, What are you guys doing? I can't believe you're eating that. How could you dishonor God? You know? And they're like, what is your problem? I have free, I gave thanks to God for this. I'm free to eat it, moron. <laughs> and of course, you know, again, they probably verbally didn't have those exchanges, but it, there was, ad, maybe they did. Maybe they used different terminology, but there was certainly that attitude towards one another, this conflict, this, this break, really, this disruption in their unity in Christ, really just a misfocus altogether. And by the way, that's something the weak must not do, right? Because Paul says he adds to it at the end of verse 3. He must not judge those who are, are eating whatever they want because Paul adds God has accepted them. In other words, who do you think you are? You who would reject the one that God has accepted. Let that sit for a while, folks. Let that sit for a while concerning our attitude toward one another in the body of Christ. The one God has welcomed. By the way, the Greek uh, word Paul uses for welcomed in verse 3, when he tells the, uh, the strong to welcome the weak, it's the same word he uses when he speaks of God welcoming the strong. Same word, receiving in, as part of one's family, really. Now, One commentator adds this uh, about that phrase. Let me tell you this. He says this, Although the phrase at the end of verse 3, God has accepted him, God has accepted him, speaking of the strong Christian, it directly follows him who eats. That's the strong. The context, though, makes clear that divine uh, acceptance applies both to the strong and the weak. So it's not like Paul saying, well, God accepts him, but not you weak. No, that's ridiculous. He accepts both, and we see that later on in the passage when uh, 15.7, where Paul 
commands them to accept one another just as Christ has accepted them. But to the one who eats freely and to the one who does not. In other words, divine acceptance applies to both. Paul's point is that if God himself does not make an issue of such things, what right does one of his children have to do so? If the strong and the weak have equal acceptance by and fellowship with the Lord, it is sinful arrogance for those two kinds of believers not to accept each other. Huh? See, you're all, you're all okay right now because you're like, hey, I don't have any disagreements with anybody about what they eat, like pork. We all get together. We just, you know, we have it, bacon. We're all good, right? But we do have issues. <laughs> And our attitude concerning how we approach our brothers and sisters in Christ is critical, beloved. It's critical. You you basically have here Christians taking sides against one another over, here it is, non-essential issues. Non-essential issues. Think how much, think how much that must grieve the Lord. He laid on his life for these people that he might bring them together in one body of Christ and now they're getting into it and dividing and segregating over issues that don't ultimately even matter. (laughs) Right? I mean, what does it matter if one person esteems one day as greater than the other and the other just esteems them all alike? What does it matter in the scheme of things? Does it? Huh? I mean, it would matter if you had a different view about the salvation of Jesus Christ, one that was errant. That would matter. That would keep you out of heaven. But you want to celebrate the day and call it special? Go for it. Go for it. Uh, And don't look down on me because I don't, because I'm not required to. Beloved, ultimately, each group thinks they are better than the other. (laughs) It is a a my faith is better than yours kind of attitude. And that is foolish. That is absolutely foolish. But guess what? Sin turns us into fools. It does. When it goes left unchecked, when we're not repenting of it, it makes us fools. And it can rupture the unity of the church, which is exactly why Paul spends 36 verses addressing it. Beloved, the bottom line is this. If we value the unity of the church, do you value it, beloved? Do you value it? Think seriously about that. If you don't, you repent, okay? No, I'm serious, repent. At any time you don't, repent. You know, it's like all these things. We're like, you know, yeah, I value the unity of the church. Well, tomorrow you may not, (laughs) okay, because that's the condition that we're in. Uh, We become self-focused, self-centered, selfish, and we stop valuing the unity of the church. So you've got to repent. That's the Christian life, ongoing repentance. Uh, But the bottom line is this. If we value the unity of the church, then we will repent of our sinful arrogance or any feeling of spiritual superiority when it raises its ugly head in our hearts. And we will embrace and welcome those in the church who may hold different convictions from our own. 
concerning secondary issues, non-essential issues, instead of effectively making them essential issues and then being critical of one another over them. Huh? All right. So, beloved, organ and piano versus drums and guitar has divided churches. Huh? Now, get this. Think about this. Both groups, because I've heard them, I've heard the arguments from both groups, but in both cases, both groups would argue that their desire is to honor the Lord. And so one would say, I don't think drums, you obviously know which direction we went, but uh, drums and guitar uh, is too worldly, too rocky, too whatever. I don't know. They have different things. And piano and organ is more whatever, Okay. But, but this group would say, well, well, we think all the instruments that God gives us should be used in a wonderful way to honor the Lord. Okay, but they want to honor the Lord. The other folks want to honor the Lord. But the fact that churches would divide over it is absolutely crazy. Now, I always tell people, listen, I mean, if you hate the music, then I don't know, as long as you can deal with that. Because we're not, <laughs> we're not gonna, you know, mix it up. And but we do have a mix, don't we? We do. Sometimes we go solo without. We always have the guitar, but sometimes he does an acoustic guitar or whatever, right? We mix it up. We're trying. We're not. We don't do that on purpose, though. We're not like, oh, we got to appeal to the folks who don't like drums, or we just mix it up because sometimes the drummer goes on vacation, which is rare, <laughs> which is absolutely rare. That man should seriously go on more vacations. I'm telling you. Um, but, okay, how about this? Abstaining from alcohol, so see, now everyone's going to get, versus drinking alcohol. I don't know if you know, but if you've, maybe you grew up in a heritage where you went to a, they call it dry church. In a dry church, you cannot drink alcohol at all. And they believe again in honor of the Lord. Okay. What about those who feel like they have freedom to drink alcohol in moderation? Not getting drunk, not for the purposes of getting drunk, that's sin. Hello? That's sin. But they believe they have the freedom to do it. Giving thanks to the Lord for it. Huh? See, and then churches gather again. Oh, I can't look at him. What does he think he's doing? That's so dishonorable to the Lord. The other one's looking down on the one who abstains and says, what is their problem? I mean, don't they know they have freedom? What? Stop it. Just stop it. Let me see. Let me hear. How about uh, dressing up for church versus coming more casual? Now, woo! Woo! Now, this is, this is what I've always thought. What if we could just have a place where that didn't matter and you came as you wanted? Not that you would come naked or anything like that or in your swimming suit, not appropriate for here, but you know what I'm saying. Where if you want to dress up, but I'm telling you, folks that came from a dressed up, if you went to a dress up church, which I have in the past, you dare not come into that place not dressed up. I'm telling you. But again, what's the argument? Well, I think that honors the Lord. Okay. I'm doing it because I want to honor the Lord. I want to, I mean, I dress up for this. I dress up for that. I get it. Great. 
But this other guy, he says, I come and I feel I have freedom to do this or do that, and I honor the Lord in my shorts because it's hot outside and I'm very, I, you know, I'm just, again, and so both people are Christians, both loving the Lord, and we, we get so tired. Instead of saying, hey, how's your sanctification going? How are you growing in Christ? Who have you told about Jesus lately? You know, say we want to have conversations about that, non-essential issues. I know, my time's over and everything, but I'm having fun with these because this is, this is where we take this and begin to take the principles from it and begin to apply it to real-life situations. Here, here's another one that's really hot. And I don't mind saying it, you know? I don't mind doing it. I don't mind. Homeschool versus public school. There are folks in the homeschool movement that would say, if you send your kids to public school, you must not love the Lord. Really? Are you serious? And so churches will actually divide over this issue. They'll, they'll become the homeschool. Uh, by the way, I homeschooled all of my kids. Well, I didn't. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was the principal. <laughs> uh, but I, she did all the work. She did, but, but if someone wanted to send their kids to public school, what? And they think, for them, that might be the best situation. Maybe mom should not be at home alone with those children unchecked by authorities and stuff. I just, um, anyway. So one writer, I'll close with this. One writer, and we'll come back to this, and, and what we're going to find here, too, is he's going to make a great theological argument about uh, Jesus being the Lord. Like, who are you to, to judge the servant of another? That's a great, that's next. Ooh, that's good. He's going to talk about conscience. And we're gonna, I think we'll learn a lot about just how we work through those issues and having uh, different convictions concerning things. Again, secondary issues, matters that are not essential to the Christian faith necessarily of being saved or not being saved. Um, but we'll, we're going to come back to that and begin to apply those things. But it's the, it's the primary issue here, and he kind of closes with this. He says, the Romans' issues were disputable matters, disputable matters or opinions. That's what we're told in verse 1, on which it was not necessary for all Christians to agree. Hello? So, concerning the deity of Christ, you better believe it. Every Christian must agree. And if not, I will, and you should, rebuke, exhort, in love, in love. That's the loving thing to do. Uh, someone starts talking nonsense about salvation, Somehow, through works, you must rebuke and exhort. Even if they don't know what they're saying, rebuke, exhort, in love, correct that errant thinking. is dangerous, damnable, okay? Uh, but um, on these matters where they are disputable matters or opinions, guess what? It's okay if your brother and sister in Christ doesn't agree with you. It's okay. Unity, not uniformity, is what we're called to. That's what's so cool, Look around, man. All these different folks from different strokes. <laughs> Used to be a show. I love that show, Different Strokes. Um, they don't have good shows like that on TV anymore. But do you know what I'm saying? And yet, guess what? None of that stuff should matter. Because our unity in Christ is that glue that locks us together. So he says, uh, 
Romans, were, these were disputable matters in which it was not necessary for all Christians to agree. And then he says this, we must not elevate non-essentials to the level of the essential, because that's what we do, and make them test of orthodoxy and conditions of fellowship. I'm not going to fellowship with you because you don't homeschool. Huh? Crazy. I'm not going to fellowship with you because you like to dance. Or because you don't dance. <laughs> Equally ridiculous. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. And Lord, most importantly, I thank you for the church. Wow, what a blessing. Just personally being uh, not with the body of Christ for the last three weeks. Whew. That was tough and just so good to be back with my brothers and sisters, and Lord, we pray, we pray that you would help us to live together in harmony, in peace, loving one another, building one another up, Father. Lord, may we be so careful. We, we indeed are very different in many ways, but we are the same in one very, very significant way. We both are saved the very same way. We both share in the common righteousness of Jesus Christ. He has cleansed us and made us right before you. We are one body in Christ, full of diversity, but one in Christ. May we do nothing to damage that unity. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.